Welcome to the Teaching Classroom 21, a podcast by The Ever Learner. I'm James, your host. Join me and my guests every week as we discuss, debate and explore the features of a world-class classroom in the 21st century. Welcome listeners to the Teacher in Classroom 21 podcast. I'm your host, James Sims, and I'm privileged to welcome this week Scott Livingston from Montreal, Canada. Scott is is renowned in the field of high-performance sport as an expert in strength and conditioning, movement dysfunction, and athlete reconditioning. Scott has worked in elite sport for approaching three decades, recently specializing in the process of integrating high-performance coaching with therapeutic practice. Creator of his high-performance sport business, husband to Jamie and father to Gretchen, Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you, James, for having me on your show. It's, I, I'm extremely excited about this. I think it's going to be really fascinating. I want to take you back, I think it's three years, oh, no, sorry, a little bit longer to a stint where you've been away from home for three years. And um, I'd like to know whether your return to Montreal and to Canada from your ventures in the northern United States was a homecoming. And if it was a homecoming, how did that feel? It was a homecoming of sorts in the sense that um, I actually went through, you wouldn't get this in any of the information you would have read, but I'd gone through quite a stormy period of time in my life when I was down in the States. I was in New York and at the time married to uh, another woman and uh, got divorced while I was down there while I was working for the New York Rangers and the New York Islanders uh, professional hockey teams. And uh, I actually lost my job with the Rangers. The GM decided he was going to change directions. And so I was out of a job, out of a marriage and uh, looking for work. And so this job came up with uh, Montreal Canadiens, which are like the Manchester United of, uh, of hockey. And, uh, and, it, and it was actually a team that as I grew up, I hated I was a uh, I was a Boston Bruins fan, so I uh, I was like a Liverpool fan, but I was now going to go work for Man U, and uh, so I had done I had taken this job, and I was very excited about the opportunity to come home and uh, reconnect with friends and family and things like that. And so, yes, it was a it was a wonderful return, but at the same time, there was a lot of comings and goings uh, in my life. Do you recall the journey that you made? I mean, was it in a car, a van? Did you fly back in? Do you, do you recall that? And if you do, do you recall the sentiment? Did, we, did you arrive back in Montreal thinking, I'm home and this is permanent? Did you, come, did you arrive back thinking, I'm home and this is a stint? How was that? It's a good question. Um, I did drive because I had to uh, pack all my stuff in a box van, I think, and drive home. And then... Uh, re refabricate my life um i recall being sort of lost at the time because i had to sort of find my footing again um obviously after a divorce you're kind of not really sure where life is and what you're doing and it represented sort of a a grounding point because i had good friends but i had to figure out how i was going to live where i was going to live what i was going to do and uh but i had this new job and so, you know, you're thrust, it's more of a feeling of, whoa, let's go, you know, because I was going back and I was going right into another job, uh, right into a different uh, cultural uh, experience with a new team. And so there was a lot of new stuff, uh, a lot of expectations around trying to find an apartment. And I had made some decisions as well, because uh, when I was in the States, I, I commuted every day into work. It was about an hour and a half. I used to live in Connecticut and drive into New York City. So for your viewers, this would be like living, you know, way outside of London and driving into the center of, center of London every day or your audience and uh, and then driving back afterwards. And so I figured at one point that I spent 26 days a year in my car. And wow. uh, so when I came back to Montreal, I was intent on in finding an apartment uh, very close to the office. So I found myself this really cool loft and I became a bachelor for a few years. And so it was a, an, a, an exciting time for me, really. How does your commute today compare to that one? <laughs> 
Well, it was uh, my commute today was from upstairs in my house downstairs here. Uh, it depends on the day, but when I do go into the office in Montreal, because I actually live in Mont Tremblant, which is a ski village about an hour and a half north of yeah. uh, Montreal, I moved there a while ago, and uh, I do go in once a week, and that's that is about an hour and a half. But I make it very comfortable for myself. I listen to podcasts, I listen to audiobooks. And I usually stay in the city and have a nice dinner with a friend and catch up and then come home. So it's a, it's a different life for sure. Well, that's, it's, it's really interesting. So effectively, you've got, if you've got a working week of five days, you've got four days working from home and you've got one day and one night where, where you're down in the city in the, in the office. And, and is, the, is, the, is the office you're working in, it's, what's, what sort of scale and size team is that? How many of you are there? We have a 10,000 square foot uh, gym. It's a, called a, it's in, in the gym business. It's kind of a boutique style mm-hmm. gym that is very, uh, not, it's a mem- non-membership based gym in the sense that you don't buy a membership and pass a card to get in the space. It's very much a, a community oriented space. Uh, most of the clientele have a relatively high net worth. Uh, you've got what I call executive athletes. You've got performance athletes of all kinds and some Olympians, et cetera. So it's a kind of a unique environment. And we have about 35 people that work for us. Some are personal wow. trainers, some are uh, clinicians of all types. And then we have some administrative team and we have a very cool elite cycling system that uh, one of my partners built called Power Watts that uh, is kind of the juggernaut of uh, revenue generators for our business model. I see. Tell, tell us a little bit about Power Watts. That's, that's- PowerWatts is a, a cycling system that my partner, Paulo Saldana, developed. Um, he started it basically, uh, anybody who's listening that's a cyclist would probably know the CompuTraining software. And essentially yeah. what happens is CompuTrainer built, which actually has gone out of business now, but they built a rear wheel um, force uh, system that would that basically had a braking capacity and it was run by software. And you would put your road bike on this and you could ride and change gears and effectively feel to to a degree like you were riding outside. So Paulo took that system and basically put eight bikes in a room and then he would switch people's bikes in and out. So he had at one point a room where he probably had over 150K worth of bikes in the room and they would switch them in and switch them out for classes. That was when I first met him. And so then what he did was he created a spec bike that you just change the seat set and the headset uh, setting and uh, then created a software and now it's really very high tech where you go into the class and each person has their own speedometer and they work at their own load and there's 10 people working it's pretty cool so one of the things that comes through really strongly from you scott both in the things that you you've said so far today but also in my reading around your work and your life is high performance is clearly and and i mean athletically but more broadly as well the high performance is clearly an important feature of your work and of your life so in your work with so our listeners know as you mentioned before you've worked as strength and conditioning coach at really elite level uh, nhl hockey teams uh, the islanders the rangers in new york uh, as you mentioned before montreal canadians um, also with the b210 olympic program as well so working with and you've got some great stories of that also on your own podcast but my question to you is, what is elite performance? What is high performance to, to you and to your eye? I guess in sport, we can kind of see it. It's aesthetic to a degree. But in your mind, does it go beyond the physical? Is it behavioral? Is it psychological? Is it sociocultural? What is high performance? That's a good question. I mean, it's uh, I guess it's a mindset in the sense that you uh, eliminate the limits or limitations or perception of limitations um, by use of uh, various means. Uh, that can be money. That can be um, in- intellect or intellectual property. It can be uh, innovation. It can be um, the integration of uh, of high performers uh, together in a group working around a project. Uh, but you're essentially trying to create an environment where limits are are taken away to the best of your ability, and there the sky is the limit in a sense that you uh, that you remove those barriers to to really achieving whatever it is that you want to achieve. So you know you can look at a NASA space project as a high performance project, somebody trying to build a you know uh, a huge uh, industrial project in dubai is a high performance project uh, trying to run an elite sports team is a high performance project and every one of those to some degree uh, 
has um, certain perceived barriers to success. And in some instances, people think that they're running high performance organizations, but they're actually not removing the impediments or not thinking in a true, truly high performance way. So I've actually found um, in high performance sport that it is a rarity to some degree that it is truly high performance. Uh, everybody would say that it is, but uh, there are always um, impediments to success and, and, and the, the moments that people actually brainstorm and think through um and varying ways to succeed. I would say something like F1 racing is true high performance. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and it doesn't always have to be a, a monetary cost to it. It's really in, in uh, a mindset to a degree. So, it, so extracting some of, it sounds to me like you differentiate between high performance and peak performance. And what kind of interests me within that is with the range of athletes that you've worked with and looking at the barriers that you've tended to see to what degree of those barriers being physical things that perhaps are really tough to change and to what degree have they been things like psychological processes, self-limiting beliefs, assumptions, how, mm -hmm. how does, how does that balance out in your experience? Well, I think it's a continuum that, um, most, if you want to talk athletes as an example, um, most athletes as they rise through a process of becoming true elite athletes and, and have a success, whether it's professional sport or Olympic sport, um, go through a, a call it climbing of a mountain that, uh, in a process of arriving at true elite status. And that usually covers through your physical limitations your um, possibly financial and uh, structural limitations around the um, resources you have to actually be successful, whether that's engaging the right kind of coach or the right performance team members around you, et cetera. And then you move up to, and really the thing that differentiates the cream of the crop from being winners and just about being winners is usually mindset and mental performance. And that's become more and more clear in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years of, of elite sport performance. Um, as So if you look historically back, and it would probably be true of uh, elite football uh, or elite rugby in England, and it would be true of elite hockey and football. Back in, I say, would say the 70s and 60s, 70s and early 80s, there really wasn't much physical conditioning other than what was integrated into the sport practice field. So there was a lot of room for growth and development in that zone. And so I would say between about 1985 and 2005, that was the growth curve for performance. And so now the next growth curve that you're starting to see is that mental performance piece. Um, but it, it was almost until that got exhausted people didn't necessarily take the leap of faith to get into the mental side of the game. Yeah. It's almost like that sigmoid curve idea that the, the, the curve rises and, and sooner or later it's going to flatten out and plateau, but you have to find that next curve to travel on. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a really fascinating one. I, I'm also fascinated in the work that you do. That One of the things I perceive is that diagnostics, whether it's in movement dysfunction analysis or whether it's in strength and conditioning coaching, diagnostics would appear to be a very, very central feature of your work um, with athletes. Is that a fair thing to say? And if so, what is the role of diagnostics in your work? Well, it's interesting that you use the word diagnostics because <clears throat> I actually... Um, do what I would call the counterpoint of, of a true diagnostic proposition. So if you look at a medical practitioner or a classic therapeutic approach, what, what is used is a, is a diagnostic approach that is sort of a funnel methodology assessment. So if you come in to see me and I look at you and I say, and I look at you, you've, you've got shoulder pain or something. So I'm going to do an examination and I'm going to go through a series of tests. I'm going to do a history and all this stuff. And at the end, I'm going to come and I'm going to name that, that tune. I'm yeah. going to say you have a, a shoulder tendonitis of some sort, and I'll name it the, the tissue that's that's giving you problems. And really, um, what I've come to understand more and more in my practice is what I do is more of what I call a holistic profile of the entire body and look at cause and effect. I see. And I try not to name that tune, but I try to understand why this, this problem is occurring. So if the problem is occurring 
because you actually have an issue in a left foot that you never cleared up from an ankle problem many years ago. And it's not always clear that you can make the leap of faith that they're connected, but it, the, the thought process is if you can clear the impediments to movement, you will take the stress off of the, the tissue that's getting stressed and you want to better understand why that tissue is being stretched, stressed. So at the end of the day, rather than having a diagnostic proposition, which usually then ends up having some simple intervention, whether that's, you know, drug oriented or, or specific, you know, exercise or whatever, we look at it much more from a, a global perspective and all the different factors that you want to clean up. So it's, it's, it's that potential range of causalities that ultimately you're interested in looking at. And I, I think that is a fascinating point because how many times would we go, as you said, with a sore shoulder? Okay, in my mind, I'm probably thinking more of a general practitioner doctor. And we look, okay, it's sore there, the muscle is so, so the tendon is rubbing, whatever it happens to be. And as you said, we treat it in that way. We treat that symptom where where the cause may well be something much more underpinning, something much more foundational, which has led to that experience in the shoulder. And well, that- uh, as an example, not to interrupt you too much, no, no, but please. the, uh, you know, to link into some, some of the world that you're in with education, you, you will have uh, kids that come into school with potentially um, attention deficit uh, uh, issues. Maybe they're not focusing enough. So, you might do a, a diagnostic assessment and then name whatever issue it is that that kid's having. Whereas if you tend to take a more global viewpoint, you, that, that issue might be driven by nutritional issues, post-concussion that maybe wasn't picked up in a history, um, you know, the, uh, the mindset or stress points that are going on in the child's life, et cetera. So the typical examination would be much more sort of, okay, let's name that tune based on a few very, you know, simple rubrics versus really looking globally at what's going on in this kid's life. And you'll, you know, you look at the concussion, the, you know, concussion is a much bigger thing these days. And we're noticing that concussion changes mood, changes ability to focus, et cetera. So you'll have a kid who goes and plays a soccer game and gets an incidental concussion, nobody knew about it. And all, all of a sudden in their class, they're starting to have mood disorders and issues. And so then somebody says, well, he has ADD. Well, he doesn't have ADD as a concussion, you know? Yeah. So it's yeah. that kind of proposition that I look at. It, it's really fascinating. We, we as an industry in education are moving much more closely to the notion of diagnostics through uh, testing processes and testing procedures. And I think what I'm learning from this conversation is that that, whatever that diagnostic reveals it does not reveal causality it mm-hmm. re- it refi- it might reveal performance but it does not reveal causality causality could be something like intellectual capacity it could be something like a, a mild learning difficulty but it could be a whole range of other phenomena as well and i i think that's a, a fascinating principle mm-hmm. I, I must ask you therefore you 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 range you raise the idea there of adhd or um uh to for want of a better word, a condition or experience like that. What is your personal interpretation of of the growth in that condition? Uh, I think it's got a lot to do with far more things than, than, uh, than what I would call pathology. I think it's got more to do with uh, nutrition. It's got more to do with uh, a lack of uh, physical um, exercise and movement in our children. I think it's got to do with a change in um, the sociological fabric of, uh, of our, of our lives where, you know, you and I grew up probably with, uh, I mean, I can't speak for you, but for moms that, you know, you came home at lunchtime and there, they were there. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, the two person family with the daycare situation and the children, uh, basically living, growing up with other people, managing their, their lives, uh, the ability for children to be deeply attached and connected to their parents has changed. So you get behavioral issues that are associated with that. And I think that's got way more to do with stuff. And the unfortunate thing is that when you get into it being a diagnostic approach, then there's usually a drug associated with it. And so now we're, we're managing things with drugs, which always have side effects, which in many cases aren't positive. And a lot of these things can be solved by, you know, in many cases, better nutrition, uh, 
getting the kids moving uh, and potentially addressing their home life and stress and things that they're dealing with. Now, there may be the exclusive occasional one, but if you don't take a look at all those things like we talked about before, you're, you know, now you're drugging the kid instead of dealing with what's the truthful causal effect. So I, as a, as a father, as you are, Scott, I, I have to therefore ask you with, with, that insight and with that interpretation of what's important as a broad education experience when you walk into a, a school or a college and you're thinking about that as a possibility for your daughter what what are you looking for there and beyond that what do you see and what do you see maybe as the gaps if there are any well, my wife and I are struggling right now in some ways about our daughter's education because um, the year before last, uh, it was clear to us that she wasn't being activated enough in school and um, that there was too much downtime and, and not enough activity. So we went to a different school that had a more active foundation, a better physical education program, um, and a better what I would call recess structure and, and programming around that still not where I'd like it to be. So we're now discussing more and more the idea of um, potential uh, homeschooling um, or at least crafting measures around uh, some of the activity based opportunities that are at the school and getting her connected into those things without trying to over uh, over uh, structure her day to some degree. Cause sometimes there's a bit of a problem with, structure versus, you know, uh, getting them to move, etc. So that's one of my problems is, you know, as my daughter grows up here trying to figure out what's the best, um, you know, um, adjustment for activity, education, stimulation, socialization, all those different uh, questions come into play. And I'm reading a really fascinating book right now that, that my brother, who's a teacher, actually gave me years ago uh, called Hold On To Your Kids. And uh, I can shoot you the reference at some point, but um, right. it's uh, written by a physician and a psychologist probably about 25 years ago, 20 years ago. And it really talks about the concept of attachment and how children create attachment and their primary attachment is their parents. And what's happened socioculturally to us over the last 20 years or so is that, um, you know, be, with the advent of more daycare, and as I had mentioned earlier, kids are are losing their primary attachment to their parents and shifting it to their to their social network or their friends. And the problem is their social network doesn't necessarily look out for them the way their parents do. So then they start making poor decisions, and they also start reflecting in their relationship to their parents in a more um, you know push away mechanism and and non listening mechanism, just as though as the author attributes it to, it's almost as though when you break up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever, you never really want to see them again. You don't want anything to do with them. Well, it's the same thing. When you lose that attachment to your parents, you no longer want to deal with your parents. So it's a fascinating book in terms of how you keep connected and the traditions in your life and, you know, whether it's even having family dinner and things like that. So I think school plays a huge part in creating traditional fabric, the connection of the teacher, maintaining the connection of the parents, keeping kids active. And, and I think that that's what's to some degree missing a little bit in some of our educational programming today. It, it, it's a, it's a, I have so many questions there. The, the, one, the one I think I want to bounce back to is that in an era where I think many teachers who would listen to that, I think, I think almost without exception, people would agree with those sentiments completely. I think where the challenge lies at the moment is that, as you said, whether it's the structuring and the assumptions around parents, within the school, teachers are being more and more singularly focused towards single singular measures of what is perceived as success. So, for example, the young teacher who goes in as a science teacher or as a history teacher or as a gym teacher or whatever it happens to be, they are quite quickly indoctrinated to the idea that we are judging you as, a, as an educational body by how your students perform on a very narrow range of typically written tests. And I'm wondering that with what you're describing there, we're seeing in many ways the the kind of the fallout of that of those ideas. And I, I, I'd be fascinated to hear your interpretation of something like that. That teachers, it's an inevitability that they have to focus down on these test results, say, or other marginal factors that might cause this 
interpretation. How, how would you feel about that? Well, I think it's a, it's a similar problem in education as it is in almost any um, venue of performance. Um, in I'll, I'll sort of circum, circumnavigate this question a little bit. When in my world of high-performance sport, um, a lot of people now talk about evidence-based practice. And the truth of evidence-based practice is that um, you can't be in innovative if your whole focal approach to working with an athlete or a performer is all based on previously researched evidence. Mm -hmm. um, for two, pro two, two propositions, one is that if you're using stuff that's been proven, well, you're way behind the time because it took 15 years to prove it. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, everybody else is doing new and innovative things. And then the second proposition is that you are limiting yourself to a very, you know, thin line of, of uh, opportunity and things that you can do. So ultimately, if you want to be truly innovative and truly high performing, you, you have to be trying things that haven't been proven. Very so in the, in the same way, in, uh, I think in the educational system, um, you know, we start getting into this um, tricky uh, slippery slope of, you know, let's, let's make sure that the kids are meeting a standard, but then by making them meet a standard, you're really just keeping everybody at this common level of, of average. And I, I know I passed that book on to you about the end of average, the end of average yeah. reading it, but it's essentially all about that. You know, that our educational system, as we know it today was fabricated around a structure of sort of creating a homogenous layer of education for everybody. And everybody sort of meets that. Well, now you're no longer sort of looking at the individual capabilities and capacities of each person in the room and coaching or teaching to to them and there's going to be you know different people are going to move at different different speeds and have different successes earlier and later in their life and so if you're truly being um high performing and 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 getting people to do the best that they can do it shouldn't be something that's very homogenous which is what our education system unfortunately becomes when you get focused on standard tests and, um, you know, a certain very fixed curriculum, et cetera. I think what's fascinating about what you just said there is I think a vast majority of us have that intuition, but I think what you've just done magnificently is I think you've just placed it into reason. And I, I would really encourage our listeners to, to drag that part of what you just said back and listen to that again, because for me, that is a fascinating insight. I want to drill down into a decision that's pending, Scott. You have a big decision. I don't know if it's months away, a year away, but you have Gretchen who's a, approaching a point where you and Jamie are going to make a call, presumably including her in the decision, about her education. Where is the line for you? Is homeschooling a, tr a real consideration for you? And what worries you about going in that direction? Well, I think um, homeschooling has, um, you know, we all get hamstrung by certain fears or uh, a lack of knowledge in, in what is called the unknown. So once you decide to take the leap of faith to homeschool, you're now um, making a decision that you're going to be responsible for the education of your child. And now you have to lump that into all the other responsibilities you have on a day-to-day -day basis and really do your homework. And so where does that fit in your um, your construct of prioritization in your life? You know, um, goes back to sort of Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. And, you know, when, uh, if you start getting into a place where, you know, you have to be able to put the roof over your head and pay the bills, then you start to maybe com compromise certain aspects of what you need to do. So right now we're in a place where things are very good and our lives are good. But I would hate to think that my daughter's at home and then things get stressful around money or something and we're no longer focused on her education. And so she's then, so there's a bit of a, what I would call guarantee when you put them in the system that they're going to actually reach a certain level. Um, I think the other thing is that, uh, you know, do you, are you able to provide the level of stimulus, uh, the educational support, uh, the knowledge factor that the kid needs? Uh, I certainly, my daughter goes to school in French and I speak French, but not to the level where I feel I can support her education in it. 
Um, I was never great in math. My daughter's probably doing better in math right now than I did and, and, and probably can tell me to do things I can't even tell her to do myself. So you start to get into this place, well, what can I really help my daughter achieve what she needs to achieve? So then you have this edge, then you have this actual knowledge curve for yourself about, well, now do I get on and figure out how to use Khan Academy or whatever other types of systems out there, such as yourselves, et cetera, to create and craft educational mechanisms for my daughter? Huge learning curve, just like everything is. So that's, the I would say, the fear side of things for me or concern side of, of things. Then there's the socialization. There's always the question, does she get enough connection, connection to friends, connection to people, um, and, and is that going to happen when she's homeschooled? Um, so you're making that that decision, and I think for me, we're going to base a lot of this on probably not doing it next year, but I think we're going to see how she does with one more year in the school that she's in because she's switched schools three times in the last three years because of our moving. And I'd like to see if the school really gels with her because I do I haven't lost complete faith in the educational system. And I think the key thing for me is going to be, is she thriving? And can we help her thrive at home and thrive at school and she can get as much as she wants to get out of it? And if she is, then I, I think we'll keep her in the system. But it's 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 really fascinating. I I'll give something away here as well. Um, about three years ago, my my two daughters Anna and Georgina they they um, were both at the same school. They're two years apart, but they they were two years apart within the same school. And I rather reactively one day um, after a series of concerns at the school actually pulled the girls temporarily out of the school. And the reason. It was very temporary. This, this lasted about 48 hours. It was probably more of a mood than a decision in truth. But um, the, the primary concern we had was what I mentioned before, which was the, the school, through no fault of the individuals that were working there, all of whom were working very, very hard, they were almost entirely focused on, uh, on testing and testing in a very, very narrow set of challenges and outcomes. And it became deeply frustrating um, to me on two levels. One was that the, the narrowness and the lack of breadth of the focus and the lack of movement, as you mentioned, for example. But the other thing that I found really, really difficult about the situation was that even if I was to look at the slither of focus, the testing paradigm, I, as the parent, couldn't interact with my students sorry, my children's learning, because I didn't have the information to help them at home. At best, I was getting an occasional report. I was going into the school maybe once or twice a year. And I'd be interested to know your view on that. As someone that's worked as athletes learn and learn and grow and grow and improve, is that a fair criticism that I have for um, the educational system that, that I experienced through my children? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, anytime you get, uh, I guess this is sort of what I was talking about when you asked me the high performance question earlier, anytime you, you have to create a mechanism to serve uh, the numbers game, um, you have to compromise uh, the qualitative nature of what you deliver. So in true high performance, you have to have a very individualized approach uh, you have to have a v true clarity on where the deficits lie in the person that you're working with or in the program that you're delivering. And you have to be able to find solution sets for all those deficits. So in a classroom of 20 or 25 or whatever the size classroom it is, you've got 25 kids who are on different levels of, uh, of an educational continuum and you have one teacher. So one teacher, sometimes the school, maybe maybe they have an additional teacher if you're in a really special school, but you're still dealing with a one to 20 or one to 25 or one to 12 ratio. And so there's going to be some level of generalization and you're going to have a certain, um, you're going to have to come up with ways of sort of establishing whether people are moving along the continuum of development. So then you have to come up with tests and people have to pass them. And of course, some are going to pass them at a higher level and others aren't. And, and so then you're, you're sort of pushing the herd along in different ways. But ultimately, is that serving the best um, benefit of each individual person in that room? No, it can't. So that is the weakness of our educational system. Now, 
the question then becomes like, what is the limiting factor for you to, to create a mechanism whereby you can overcome those limits? And uh, that's where I think your expertise and, and, and the people you're interviewing's expertise comes into play. I know in my industry, uh, you have to become creative in, in the mechanism. If you, as an example, when I worked with the Montreal Canadiens, I had 25 guys I had to train. Um, and when I work with Olympic athletes, I have one individual athlete at a time to work with. So, you know, you have to come up with creative means to figure out how you're going to deliver programming, how you're going to individualize that programming. And, and so that's what I think has to be come up, come up with in the school system. But the, I guess, monetary side of that equation, the union side of that equation, a lot of different factors come into play on, on people's ability to actually overcome those things. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's absolutely fascinating. I, so, so could you tell us a, then how, a little bit about how your approach has to differ structurally when you're working with the individual, uh, let's, let's say elite Olympic athlete, and you're working with the 20 to 25 hockey players and you're, you're developing their, um, their performance through those fitness developments. How, how do you then, how do you effectively as the educator in, in, those two environments how differently do you have to approach that yeah you have to be a lot more creative when you're working with 20 20 or so athletes uh, especially in group dynamic uh, situations um, you try to come up with mechanisms um, where you can have touch points that are individualized uh, you try to come up with mechanisms whereby you can assess in a in a you know method that takes into account all of the different elements of, of interest that you have in that at each individual athlete's uh, situation. And then after you've done that testing protocol, you, you sort of sit down and distill through it and say, what are the weaknesses of player A, player B, player C? What are the strengths? And now based on that, when they are together as a group, you do your best, not always perfect, but your best to, to go after the things that you feel are weak, weak points for each individual within a program that's constructed for a whole, you know, so you craft or revise certain exercises or certain challenges based on certain deficits that certain athletes have. It's never a perfect situation, but it's, uh, it's better than just saying, well, everybody's going to come in and do the same set of exercises. Um, but in the grind of a sports season, which is the same as the grind of a, of a school year, um, some of these things do get dropped, you know, you're, it all comes down to prioritization and focus. And for a teacher, you know, if they're exhausted and worn out and, you know, there's the demands of one child who's, uh, who's, you know, mis, mis, uh, misguided or, or, or not behaving properly. And that shifts their, their focus to another kid. And, and it's like the squeaky wheel effect in life. The kids that make the most noise tend to get the most attention. And it's the little kid over in the corner that's not saying anything that's maybe, you know, floundering that could, could flourish if they were given the opportunity. I think there's two things in there that, that, that I, I really want to draw out. The, the, the first one is that you seem to be suggesting that in a group training environment, your, your, your greatest objective would be to get down to the point of individualization, which I think is completely common sense, but also really fascinating that even in that challenging environment, you seem to be trying to get down to that individual point. The other thing that I heard there was that, you work on the you work with the athletes on their weakness and i think what can often be the case in education and a classic example of this would be something like multiple intelligence where we uh, we denote whether a child is a better visual kinesthetic or, or, or auditory linguistic learner what we tend to assume in education is we must use the strength we must use the thing that good at but what i draw from you is that you identify the weakness and improve the weakness. Would that be fair? Yeah. I mean, there, there is a, a classic banter out there as to whether you focus, um, focus on strengths and let the, the, the weaknesses uh, alone or vice versa. Um, I think the words strength and weakness are probably not your best they're not probably the best language. I think what I try to look at are uh, deficits that are, um, in in my viewpoint, um, 
undermining performance. So you could have two or three weaknesses that have nothing to do with the ability to perform in that set of circumstances. Um, and so I probably won't bother with them, you know? Um, so, but if, uh, you know, as an example, let's say you take a, uh, a goaltender, um, in, in football and you take, uh, you know, a midfielder in football, well, they, they have different dimensions of, uh, necessary capacity and, and physical needs, right? One, uh, needs to stay generally in a, in a, in a fine movement space. Uh, they don't run a lot. Uh, they jump a lot. They explode. So, and then the other one uh, tends to run a great deal, uh, has to kick repetitively, whereas uh, the, the goaltender doesn't. And, you know, so you have all these varying differences between these two individuals on the field of play. They're both footballers, but, but one does something different. So I'm going to look at a f- football goalie and I'm going to see certain deficits that he or she may have that I know if those are present, they're not going to play goal as well. Mm-hmm. But their aerobic capacity as an example might be a deficit, but doesn't really make a big difference. Me working on that in their ability to actually perform on the field of play. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I, I think what's interesting as well about the language you use there is if we take simply the words weakness and deficit, if we just consider they could potentially be the same thing, deficit makes me want to do something. It makes me want to move, the de- improve the deficit. Weakness makes me want to look the other way. Now, that might just be James, I don't know, but I <laughs> suspect that is a greater phenomenon, that what you're touching on there is activating language. It's language that we act on. A weakness is it's kind of untouchable. It's uncontrollable. Whereas a def- I, I was as you were speaking, I was listening, of course, but I was also thinking about the word surplus. A, a performer, if you have a surplus, it's temporary or at least it could be temporary, whereas a strength feels permanent. So I think that's a really interesting concept. We have have relevant and perhaps some irrelevant deficits, and we have relevant and perhaps some irrelevant surpluses. Surpluses, sure. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. And, and I think that as a concept for, for educators could be, could be a really fascinating one. I'd like, I'd like to ask you, Scott, I'd like to take you back. I will well, probably take you back to your childhood. It may or may not. I'd like to ask you in your life and in your experience, who, who and why you consider to be a great teacher? Who in your life has provided you an educational experience that, that had true relevance and, and resonance to you as a human being. And why, why does that person stick out for you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I would say there were the first teacher that I remember really made an impact on me was uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Torgman, who was my grade seven teacher. And um, I think, you know, when you're in grade two, three, four, five, your memories of education are pretty, pretty limited. But as you get into that zone of five, six, seven, eight, you really do remember most of the teachers that you had. And Mr. Torchman's, uh, I think, strength was his ability to be, to hold you accountable to um, the work, but to be, um, have a soft enough center and um, a, a, a kindness in him that allowed you to be vulnerable. So you, you had this sense that you, you could make a mistake or, um, you know, fail to do something um, that was expected and the world wasn't going to come tumbling down. You would know that you had disappointed him, um, but you would not want to disappoint him. And his disappointment would, would not be colored on a day-to-day basis. It would be in the moment and he would always make you feel like he cared about you. So I think that's, you know, when I look at what makes great teachers, it's, it's a subtle ability. And I think it's the same as great coaches. It's a subtle ability to be strong willed and strong minded enough to hold the person accountable to what your expectations are, but also have a warm fuzzy place for them to fall when they, when they do make the odd mistake because everybody will, you know? Uh, that is, uh, it's a fascinating response. But may, may I ask you to pronounce the gentleman's name again, please? Uh, Torjman. 
Mr. Torjman. Well, first uh, of all, we, we, yeah. first of all, Mr. Torjman, we we salute you. We hope you're happy, healthy, and well. Uh, I, I think what again, what's really interesting there, Scott, is you didn't describe to me a technical performance of how much this man knew. You didn't speak to me about the technology he used. You didn't speak to me about you know how how um, controlling or how much discipline he had. You, you you talk there about a feeling that the man generated and i think it's fascinating as well to reflect on the relationship between the process of learning and the affective state i think that is very frequently under uh, undervalued in education there's probably the worst case where the affective state is fear and i think we all know what that can do to the true process of learning you might get conformity you might get um, command response the chance of truly learning is probably quite slim but what you just described there is being held accountable but being wanted and valued surely must lead lead to a great learning experience Mm -hmm. i think well you know coaching and teaching are not dissimilar um they have it was interesting. I was in a program a little while ago on uh, on mindset development, and we talked about the difference between teaching and coaching. And and you know, I think fundamentally, one is where you, is somewhat didactic in the sense that you're trying to deliver information and get the person to engage in that information and, and learn it. And the coaching is really there is a little bit more of a soft sort of warm fuzzy space for that, but also an accountability side to it. So I think. I think if you're going to be a really good teacher, you also have to be a coach. Yeah. I don't think you can just be a teacher. Um, I think uh, to be a true, I guess the prof, the prof in a university in some ways would be the real classic teacher where you're basically just presenting information and the person needs to sort of step up and figure out things themselves to some degree and self-learn. But I think in school there needs to be a little bit of a coach phenomenon there as well. Um, so that's, that's what sort of comes to me, to me, uh, in that way. And I, I think that when you look at, um, strong spaces in education where w- what, what makes people really learn or what makes people, uh, perform better, um, I think it's the sensitivity in the environment. Um, but I think people do all people like to know like to be held accountable in some way, shape or form. I agree. They like to know where they stand. Um, And so, you know, you need to have means and methods for doing that. And it can't always be about everybody passing the test. You know, it it can be a whole bunch of different structures, but finding unique ways to create that accountability mechanism is really powerful. I I agree. It, 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 It makes me think of parenting as well as, as professional life as a teacher and, one of the things I've always believed as an educator and as a parent is that young people thrive and succeed far, far, far more frequently when they know where the boundaries of expectation are, because then they can succeed brilliantly within the space that they have freedom within. Mm-hmm. And um, I think sometimes we, we lose we lose sight of that. Sometimes, sometimes we don't make the outer boundary firm enough and, and young people can drift out past that and of course they out there success is far trickier mm-hmm. i'd like to i'd like you to ask a question i'd like to ask a question to you scott before we finish and it, it is this i'd like to i'd like scott to take himself five years into the future and i'd like you to tell me for that person five years down the line scott what is the one thing that you are determined that he's going to do the same as he does now and what is the one thing that you're determined is going to be different about that, Scott, five years down the line? Hmm. Wow, that's a good, uh, good finisher. I would say um, I am fa- um, very dedicated personally to the concept of um, mentorship and sharing. Um, and so for me, uh, I don't feel that education, teaching, mentorship, whatever you're format you want to call it is a transactional experience i think there's a lot of um expectations in in mentorship or in teaching where you know what energy comes back to me in some ways or what's going to come around or go around for me 
And I, I really, for me, what I hope I continue to do uh, for the rest of my life is to, to share my knowledge and myself with people I care about and help them move forward without any expectation that it's going to be paid off in some way, shape or form. So that's, that's an important thing for me. And then uh, what I hope changes is that um, I continue down a process that I've been on for a while now and just get um, a stronger sense of my own mindset, my own uh, set of uh, clo- come closer to the man I want to be um, uh, and, and the human being I want to be and, and hopefully have more and more friends and connections and and the network of people in my life that are, are not dissimilar to that. Um, I think I've shared with you in the past, but I don't really care about, uh, you know, being a super wealthy person or something like that in the sense that I will be happy to be wealthy. But um, for me, my focus is on the wealth of uh, relationships and, and, and what I do and the, and the energy of the, of the work that I do and, and all that stuff. And, and the money is kind of a side effect of that. So I think we have become sociologically too attached to a lot of, uh, you know, net gain experiences without really having a lot of connection to the process of our personal growth and development. So that's the person I want to become. Uh, Scott, I, it, it's fascinating. And I, I applaud you so because I think you're, I, th- I think the the sharing even within this 45 50 minutes that we've had now and, and i think the way you've expressed such clear ideas and such reliable solid ideas to 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 many people who will listen to this who at least theoretically are in a different industry to you i, I think behaviorally it's not so different i think what you've just described there, you're very, very, you're very much close to, but I, but I also applaud you for wanting to strive further uh, for that as well. Cause I think it, it, it's a key condition for a human being to grow and to learn and to develop. I want to say to our listeners, please, please have a look at Scott uh, Livingston's work. First of all, his podcast on iTunes or in shout engine, it's called leave your mark. I cannot endorse it highly enough. It is magnificent. It, and this is not a, a sort of a smile meter. I've been listening to it recently. It's great. Scott, you should, be thoroughly proud of it Thank you. Uh, please also have a look at, at scott with regard to his high performance sport website and also reconditioning hq some really great ideas some really great resources and if you happen to be in the area of, uh, of, of physical therapy strength and conditioning coaching uh, movement dysfunction you've got to look at scott's work it's fantastic so scott Let's sign off. Thank you so much for taking part. It's been a genuine privilege for me. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm looking forward greatly to get to know you better and to, and to consider you a friend in the coming weeks, months, and years. And from all of us here at Classroom 21, we'd really like to thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, James, for having me on the show. And uh, it's been a delight. So let's keep it going. Perfect. Thank you. Take care.